0: Welcome to Postcolonial Space, I'm Masood Raja, and what follows is an adapted version of an online webinar from my YouTube channel, in which I discuss Arundhati Roy's The God of Small Things, and follow it up with a question and answer session. I hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome to our weekly sessions. I'm Masood Raja, as you might already know and this is number 10 in our series on post-colonial studies 10th session and today we'll be talking about Arundhati Roy's novel The God of Small Things and the reason I chose this novel of course primarily is because I'm teaching it this semester but also it is probably one of my most favorite novels. And I consider it as one of the best novels, not just by an Indian author, but just generally a novel ever written in the 20th century. And of course, there are quite a few other reasons, too, which we will get to. I will not spend a lot of time on uh, summarizing the novel and telling you about characters, because obviously, if you are here today, you pretty much either know about the novel or have read the novel. But one important thing about the novel is that besides the narrative and the plot, what it also does is It allows us to learn more about, southern parts of India. And if you look at the screen, I mean, the novel is set in the state of Kerala, which is the southwestern state of India. And one thing interesting about the state is, historically, this is where it wasn't then called Kerala. Uh, That happens in 1956 through the States Act of India. This is where Vasco de Gama, the Portuguese so-called discoverer, had landed while in his journey to find the spice islands and the spice trade. Now, this entire region was then divided into two kingdoms, but this was the region which kind of governed the spice trade upon which first the Arab traders had a monopoly. Then eventually the Portuguese come in. And they establish a toehold here. They have a lot of power here. They are the ones also who bring Catholicism to this region. They are eventually defeated by the local, because of a local uprising. They are replaced by the Dutch. Now remember, Dutch had strong influence in this area and also in Malay Peninsula. The Dutch was also finally defeated by the combined local forces of I think two rajas and then eventually the east india company establishes their rule in the area and then the british government but in terms of indian states kerala is really interesting first of all of course because it has a portuguese history and had portuguese colonizers there even a viceroy for for quite a a few years and it also, as you can tell from the names of the characters, it also inherits and maintains some of its Catholic tradition. So there is a huge Christian population as well. In terms of its contemporary state, Kerala is has the highest level of education literacy rate in India. It's the second strongest economy in India, and it's also a state which has constantly had communist political parties run it and govern it. Part of its success, of course, is that during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, quite a lot of people from Kerala became international workers right in the Middle East, in the rest of the world, and it's their remittances that enable the state to have such huge resources. Part of it is also that in the mid, late, after 1956, when it becomes a state, when the communist coalition wins the government, the first few reforms they do are the educational reform and land reform. And one of the very few states in India where actually some land redistribution was accomplished and the big land holdings were broken down and land was distributed to peasants. So kind of a success story of a kind of leftist politics combined with capitalism and of course then it is rich in natural resources right in forests and in in just in in tourism so all of these things make Kerala a really remarkable state and the novel also becomes remarkable because it's one it was one of the first major novels wins a Booker Prize, is published in 1997, which is set in South India, which doesn't have these references to Bombay and Delhi and Northern India. It, it is that pecu- thing also that makes the novel really peculiar. So in, you can't necessarily call it a novel of India, just like when we talked about Salman Rushdie last week, and we talked about Midnight's Children, we call it a novel of India because it deals with larger Indian issues and is set mostly in Northern India. This is a South Indian novel and a novel about Kerala. And with then, of course, it kind of centers the experience of one state in the South, Southwest. It introduces us to their culture, the complexity of it. And I think in that sense, it is really an important novel. I will continue my thoughts about the novel, but then you can obviously ask any questions that you have. So, I mean, if you go over the plot, it's interesting in terms of temporality. Parts of the plot is in 1969 when both our two protagonists, Istaban, Ista, and Rahil, are seven years old, and we are in a small town which is named right in the opening line of the novel and it's in the Kottayam district and Ayamenam is the hometown of the two kids right that's where the the novel is set in the beginning and so the novel moves from 1960s the childhood of our main characters to 1993 where the story ends so these are the two time frames that it is dealing with In terms of its characters, we, of course, have Rahil, who is the main character. We have Ista, who is the main character. We have baby Komacha, who is their great-aunt. We have their mother, who is one of the main characters. And then, of course, Velutha is the main character of the story. And the setting pretty much is in Kerala, in Kothayam, where their mother gets married. And now the complexities in the novel are that the family that we are listening, uh, that we are reading about, they are Syrian Orthodox Christians. And so that's their heritage. The people that we are dealing with, so we know that Mamaji got married to a Hindu. So their father was a Hindu, which is totally frowned upon. And then even though this family is Christian, the cost is still a part of it, so they consider themselves, and they are, in terms of cost, they are upper class, but also in terms of their economic potential, they are factory owners, you know, they own a pickle-making factory, so they are from the top echelon of the community. But the two children who are twins are considered inferior and contaminated and their mother as well, by the Christian community as well, because their mother had married a non-Christian. And then we have the figure of Velutha who is a Dalit, who is out-of-caste Hindu. Now, even though he is part of the Marxist movement, caste plays a huge role in how he's treated, in how he is viewed. We know that he's a wonderful human being, the kids love him, and he is smart and intelligent, and and industrials. There is no doubt about that. And then, of course, there is the love between their mother and Vilutha. And so part of the novel, a lot of people see this sentence, it's about the love rules. It's not just about the love rules, it's also about how does the societal norm decide for us the value of other human beings? How deeply can a system of divisions be incorporated into our consciousness that we are constantly, without knowing it, monitoring our own place in that hierarchy. So that famous scene where Valuta's father says he will kill him himself for transgressing the caste boundaries isn't just that his father doesn't love him. I mean, that would be too reductive an explanation of it. It is that how deeply can you internalize the logic of the system in which you exist, that when someone transgresses that, you blame them and hold them accountable. That's the any system, ideological or social, in a way then, then underwrites our own identity to a point that we will repudiate those we love ourselves for that system for the integrity of that system, instead of taking a stand with them. So that's also what the novel questions. How do we become who we are? Part of it maybe is through individual choice, like baby Kumacha. She is evil, evil in a sense, because she has had an unhappy life and she has made it a point to make everyone else around her unhappy too. But part of what we become is systemic. It's larger than ourselves. And I think that's what also the novel explores. And we can talk about it more if you have any questions. Now, on a side note, a lot of times I get these questions from people on the channel as to, I am writing about this, what should I do? The point is... You know, obviously I cannot answer those micro questions because I don't know what level you're writing. What have you written before? Do you know how to write a paper? But the idea is when you're dealing with a novel of this complexity, it's very hard in a paper or two to actually tackle a whole novel. Okay, So what I advise people to do when they teach it or talk about it is to figure out which aspect of the novel you want to write about or talk about. Is it going to be its temporality? Is it going to be the politics that undergirds it? Is it going to be human relationships? Is it going to be caste? Is it going to be class? Because every single conceptual choice that you make will then enable you to talk about the novel in a more complex way. And also, please keep in mind, in order to write about the novel, you have to understand the novelistic form itself. You have to go read people like Ian Ward and Lukacs and others who have tried to define the novel, you know, as a form. Because if you understand the novelistic form, then you can handle it really well. One thing that I would highly like to point to you, even though... Arundhati Roy is is not just a novelist. I mean, after she finished this novel, it took her 20 years to publish her next novel. She's also a very activist. She got successful with this novel, but then she did something with it. That is the most inspiring part of her life to me. You know, she joined the most liberal causes in her country. She has fought for justice. She has done a lot of journalistic work. She has covered the Marxist movement, the Dalit movement in the South. So that gives you another good example of what kind of a life can you choose after you have become successful as a scholar or as a writer? And so in that sense, she also gives us this example of someone who actually went and put her politics in practice and went and did something with her life. And so we ought to read her like that too. If you want to really read some of her best writing, it's her introduction to Ambedkar's essay, The Annihilation of Caste, where she writes about a hundred page introduction to that, which gives you her understanding of Ambedkar's importance for India as as the leader of the Dalits, as the framer of the Indian constitution, as in opposition to Gandhi and his insistence upon maintaining the caste barriers and the caste boundaries the book also then beyond its uh, its politics and what happens to the characters of in the book which of course is tragic do keep in mind that that the language the way it is written is what made it also an amazing book. I mean, if you just look at this passage, so small God laughed a hollow laugh and skipped away cheerfully like a rich boy in shorts. He whistled, kicked stones. The source of his brittle elation was the relative smallness of his misfortune. He climbed into people's eyes and became an exasperating expression. This is the god of small things, the god who takes care of small things or deals with smaller people. I don't know. I, I have not been able to find a mythological analog for god of small things. It's not like in the Hindu pantheon, there is a god of small things against the god of big things. But what you can understand or discern from the novel is this idea of who does take care of small things. If the big gods are too busy in any given pantheon another thing that i would like to point out is even though she's from the south and of course hindi or hindustani or urdu is not her first language i always found like the chapter three chapter of the title three big man the laltan small man the mom this comes from Punjab and from the urdu tradition when we were little these are some of the things we would say big big man the laltan small man the mombati I mean I, I guess those of you who know Hindi and Punjabi and Urdu can translate it but literally what it means is that the, the, the big man is, is a lamp like the hurricane lamp that you carry and the little people are like candles Right. so th- this is some, something there in a chapter title with a lot of people would forget to notice right and if you look it up you know chances are wikipedia doesn't have an answer for that but that's kind of another aspect of the novel that i like into what it does with language so there are quite a few things that this novel is doing it's dealing with two temporalities we are skipping from one to the other sometimes we are in the past thinking about the present and the future. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Then another thing that it's doing is it's introducing us to culture, particularities of the culture of southwestern India, especially Kerala, which teaches us that India is not really a monolithic culture. Even Hinduism is not a monolithic religion. It has its regional permutations. Now, you already know that the great divide in Hinduism is the north-south divide. The Darvidian Hindus in the south are the original inhabitants of India. And there has always been this tension between the northern Hinduism and the southern Hinduism. So, by and large, I mean, it's a tragic novel right? I mean, if you go over the plot, in the very beginning, we are at the moment when they've had a tragedy, when their uncle, whose daughter was visiting along with his ex-wife, Sophie Moll, we are at her funeral when the novel starts in Kothayam. right? And we then, through flashbacks, learn that the kids had gotten angry at their mother for considering them a burden and they decide to escape to this abandoned house in the their mom is locked up and they don't know, but we know she is locked up because it has come out that she has had a relationship with Velutha, who is out of caste or lower caste Hindu. Now as they get to the island, Velutha is hiding there because people are looking for him. Sophie Mall drowns, and when they go to the police station where Velutha has been captured, they are led to believe that they will be considered responsible for Sophie Mall's death unless they denounce Velutha and say that he had kidnapped them, right? And that's what they do. But Velutha has already been beaten up so badly that he dies in prison. Now, that's the moment when Esther decides to stop speaking. He absolutely takes a vow of silence. Part of it, of course, is the guilt as what he has done, just the very person whom he considered his friend. And, and then, of course, mom dies when she's 31. She's kicked out of the house. Then we follow the lives of the two, two children. Esther goes back to his father, right? Becomes completely engrossed in uh, his own identity he does the housework does the shopping but he doesn't do anything with his life we have Rahel who passes through life without committing to anything marries some American comes to America has these jobs you know gets a divorce and by the time we reach the novel and the novel starts there that she has come back to her ancestral home Finally, we realize that these two people are never going to find anyone else because one is always looking for the other. They are twins, but there are also love laws that they must transgress. So the novel ends in incest at the end. So the love laws are being transgressed by their mother, then by these two kids themselves. Even baby Komacha, the terrible human being in the novel, had fallen in love with a Catholic priest. So the question then in the novel for me is, you know, who decides who we can love and how and why? And what happens to people if in a young age they have to go through these kind of decisions where they have to renounce? denounce someone that they love, or they have to see how the world has treated them. How do you become Rahel? How do you become Isla? And, and that, these are also some of the themes that we can talk about in the novel. Okay, so I have Habib here. How do the concept and the reality of the untouchable function in the novel? I mean, it's pretty obvious. I mean, if you read the novel, the answer is right there. How does it play out that even when you are in a marxist state and Velutha is the member of the local marxist communist party but even that even the most revolutionary praxis marxism cannot free you of the constraints of caste right so that's one lesson we can learn from it my own reading of the caste system and how deeply it is entrenched in india is that Islam, the so-called revolutionary religion, doesn't break through it in India as well. So people who become Muslim, if they were lower caste, they remain lower caste in Islam. I mean, if you go to rural parts of Pakistan, the the society is still hierarchically defined. You could be Muslims, you can pray together in the mosque, but when you come home, I'm a Rajput, the guy living next to me in my village is a chamar, is a mochi. The other one is a barber, and there are no intermarriages. There, you can't think in my village, which has been Muslim for the past 500 years, you cannot imagine the family or a boy who is a barber's son or a, a shoemaker's son to even imagine considering falling in love and marrying with the Rajput family's daughter or vice versa. So even though these religions promised to the Dalit population that if you convert to our faith, we will consider you equal in most of of the Islamic part of South Asia, that doesn't give them the upward mobility. That's why if you look at Ambedkar's own actions after he had fought and fought for the rights of the out of caste Hindus or Dalits, he eventually, on one single day, converts to Buddhism, along with I think 300,000 of his followers. Right? He doesn't convert to Islam; he converts to Buddhism so that he can lead his followers to a casteless faith or practice. Anum says, "I love the question the novel raised: things that we take for granted." Things we never think to question are shown to be human constructs where society decides every aspect of our lives. Absolutely. Yes. And I think that teaches us something else also, that most stringent social systems, the way they succeed is by offering themselves as natural, by offering themselves This is how things are. I mean, think of it this way. If you have ever had an argument with your parents or with someone who is a religious figure and all, they would always tell you, These are, this is how the world is. This is how these, this is how the things are. You're a Muslim, here is Islam. You either follow it or you don't follow it. There is no ambivalent space in there because they have to offer the hierarchies of a culture or a life as natural, not needing a justification. So, what the novel does brilliantly and with a heartbreaking lucidity is as to how these systems come to be, these systems that police who we love or these systems that tell us what our value is in the world. And and the novel does that brilliantly. Haroon Khan, sir, would you please shed light on postmodern terms such as pastiche and intertextuality in this novel? Well, I mean, if you watch my videos on pastiche and intertextuality, you can very easily do that yourself. Anything which stylistically or linguistically can be related to another work that she might be invoking, then the novel is intertextual. Anything that she picks up either from history or from another work and offers a reworking of it, but not in a parodic form, that would be pastiche, because pastiche has to be respectful. If it is not, if it is making fun of a previously established practice, then it becomes a parody. So these are the things that you can very easily do yourself. Sayyid Saqib Ahmed, even Marxism doesn't free them from the reality of caste system. Isn't it because Marxism is a Western system and therefore cannot work in the East? Uh, I disagree with that. Marxism was a Western system, but we have made it our own. If you go and I don't know where you are from, if you're from Pakistan, go and talk to some of the Marxists from Sindh, even from Punjab. It doesn't matter where a system comes from. You can always make it your own. The Indian Marxism, the Marxism in Kerala isn't even Leninist Marxism. It's a mixture of Maoism, which of course is in the East, And a mixture of leninist marxism that's why one of the communist party is called communist party of cpim is communist party of india marxist leninist and then there is communist marxist party that is maoist and there is no western system pakistan is a democracy now india is a democracy now Pakistani democracy is different from Indian democracy. Indian democracy is different from United States democracy. The idea basically is that inherently all human beings are equal and have the same weight. So one vote, one person basically tells us that you don't qualify people to be human. You just count them and that decides who gets to govern us. It is an imperfect system but I don't believe in this. That this is East and West. I think we live in a world there is no east and west left the very people who keep telling us that west is evil and bad i always say that that they have no problem in using destructive technologies of the west the taliban they want a pure 7th century islam implemented in afghanistan while they drive in toyota and nissan trucks made by japan a heretic nation shoot guns made by russia use missiles that are built by america all the most of destruction of the West are okay, but somehow some ideas from the West are contaminated. So I disagree with that. Uh, Indian Marxism is inherently specific to which region of India you are. There isn't even a centralized hierarchy anymore. And it's particular to the local conditions, but the basic principles are the same redistribute the land, the peasants and workers should own the mode of production, should have equal rights. And those are the particularities. It fails in Kerala is because it is riven with the politics of caste, which is a powerful social system. And as I just told you and proved to you, that even the so-called Islam and its revolutionary potential doesn't break through it. Only in the urban areas of Pakistan, you will see inter-caste marriages amongst Muslims you go to the villages Punjab Sindh even Sindh not so operative in KPK but you will still see those divisions you know chances are that people ask you where is he from and what is his family and no this boy cannot marry that girl Uh, so so though that logic plays everywhere So Anum says, I don't think that Marxism is a Western system because it is always adapted to the socio-political environment in which it is functioning. Absolutely, I agree with that. And the thing is that if you read, what is Marx studying, at least in Capital Volume 1, Capital, and how to respond to it? What kind of class system does it create? It doesn't matter where, wherever capital is or capitalism is operative. By and large, you can apply the same principles there. I mean, if if you live in Pakistan with a purely eastern system, if it's a capitalistic system, it will still have those who own the mode of production and it will still have those who sell their own labor to make a living so that agonistic view of the world will exist no matter where Marxism came from. Anum, Dr. Raja, are there specific books on Marxism or the history of Marxism in Pakistan? Or are there any parties whose pages I can go to? Well, there's a wonderful book by Kamran Astar Ali that came out about three years ago. And it's a good history of Pakistani Marxism, especially coming from Sindh. And that is published by Oxford University Press. I think it's called Surkh Salam. And I think that's a really good history of Pakistani Marxism. But other than that, you can go to Mazdoor Kisan Party, you can go to Communist Party of Pakistan's website. I can also put you in touch with people who are active in those and you can learn what their struggles have been. But the best book that I can find amongst the contemporary books is Kamran Astar Ali's book, Surh Salaam. OK, Larry is here. This is what Afro-pessimism posits. All class structures can be abolished, but the world will still be absolutely and even more than that, so there are two things that are absolutely... I don't say that it will always exist, but the thing is, the problem with race and racial politics is that you you cannot hide it. I mean, it is on I am brown. It doesn't matter how educated I am or how sophisticated I am. If I come against racism, this is what they will see. Similarly, if you're black, no... Racist would worry about your humanity or your intrinsic value as a human being. So race is the most problematic flashpoint of of cross-cultural conversations because you can't hide it. Of course, you can't hide your, your gender as well. But yes, in so many ways, then caste is problematic because there are so many people, you know, who are writing to justify it as well. And there is a reason for it. I mean, Gandhi has a whole pamphlet. Gandhi has a whole pamphlet where he encourages people from the Bhangi caste, the people who clean the streets. Streets and clean your, used to clean your toilets and everything as to how the best way for them to perform in this life is to perform the duties of their caste. And so the reason it's such a stringent system is because it doesn't just designate you that you are part of this caste it makes your rebirth connected to whether or not you perform the duties of your caste or not. So that social system then keeps you not just in that particular caste, but also encourages you, since there is a belief in multiple returns, That if you, the only way you can be born as a Dojati caste, as an upper caste, is if you perform the duties of your current caste. So that's why it becomes a highly stringent system. Sake Bamad, I am from KPK, Pakistan, from a village in District Deer. I'm a Sayyid and we are a majority in our village. Yes, you're right. They won't allow anyone to marry someone from a. That's a really important point. Also, not just in KPK, but majority. Majority of people who are Sayyids who claim their heritage from the family of the Prophet would highly discourage their children to marry outside of any Sayyid families. We have in our own village, our peers, they have had so many intermarriages that when you go and meet them, every family, because of the intermarriages, has one or two children who are either disabled mentally or physically or autistic because of those intermarriages. But it would be very rare for a Sayyid family to either let their sons marry outside of the Sayyid family or even their daughters. Of That's unthinkable. So yes, but still in, in the Khaybar Pakhtunha province, other than this, I think the the hierarchies of work-related identity are not as stringent. I mean, no. one thing that I noticed in my exchanges with people and I have extensive friendships and connections in KPK is that no one is ashamed of work. You know, people will tell you, here's here's my cousin, you know, he drives a rickshaw. Here is my cousin, man, he has a shoe shop. The hierarchies are there, but there is no social shame attached to what you do in KBK. Also in Balochistan, to some extent. But the divisions are tribal. But if you come to Punjab and southern Punjab and parts of Sindh, these hierarchies are very highly maintained and regulated. And good, so we have two Sayyids agreeing to that. But it's not just that. So similarly, if you take this and implant it within the novel, in a way, the same social taboo is at play. Right, Mamaji, of course, even though she's a Christian, is from an upper caste family. So part of the problem is that she has had an illicit relationship, that is one. But two, she has had an illicit relationship with a low caste Hindu. And that is what actually makes people more mad at her and To a point that we learn that Velutha, who we learn, is brilliant, is kind, is funny, right? A perfect kind of man in so many ways. The only reason his body literally can be destroyed is because he has transgressed the caste barriers. Not just that he has had an illicit relationship, but that he has done out-of-caste his aspirations, he has desired a woman from an upper caste, right? And that is is a huge moment in the novel, a huge critique of that way of thinking, right? There is, the police officer is slightly worried because he was arrested on a wrong pretext. Baby Kumacha had convinced the police that he had kidnapped the children, right? And he has already been beaten up by the cops. But cops also know that he's connected to the local communist party. So they are worried. But even the communists eventually, you know, abandon him. Don't fight for him. Okay. All right. So these are some of my thoughts. This novel is taught in Pakistani uh, classrooms. And I was hoping that some more of the students will join us. When you read it, it's a really complex novel. So I would say... Uh, If you want to write about it, as always, I advise people to first find out, you know, what is it that has already been published about the novel? And chances are you'll see there's a lot published about the novel. And if you go and research that, that will give you an idea of where do you want to enter the conversation. And that will tell you what else can you say or write about the round. So here is a question. How could you best apply the work of the subaltern study groups to our work on the God of Small Things? Well, I mean, you right there at the back are 10 volumes of subaltern studies that I have. So that means that subaltern studies is not one concept. So you go and pick up, out of those 10 volumes... Are there any debates about caste? Are there any narratives of caste? Then are there any particular to the South? You read those and that gives you an idea of what is the history of caste? How did it operate in Kerala or in those regions? What are its larger ramifications? I highly recommend that you read Arundhati Roy's Introduction to Annihilation of Caste, and of course, read the Annihilation of Caste itself, because that is a very important document uh, from BRM Vidkar. After you've read those, then you pick up which part of that debate appeals to you that you can use to reread the novel. But as I said, this is probably one of the most highly written about novels. So you don't just go in and say, I'm going to talk about the caste in God of Small Things because people will come back and say, well, a thousand other people have also talked about caste in a God of Small Things. I don't think so. It's a very hidden secret in the novel. The question to you, if you're writing a PhD dissertation, I will pose, had you been my student, is what is so different that you are saying about caste in the novel that others have not said so. And that's the question you will have to answer as you write about the novel. Okay, so even in caste, the socioeconomic hierarchies are increasingly stri- strictly maintained. Yes, and do keep in mind that I live in the United States of America. We are here uh, in uh, Dallas area. There is a huge South Asian population here. And I just recently read an article, I think it was New Yorker that did it, where young people will inform you that companies, Indian-owned companies over here, if you work for them as an Indian, American, right, from India, people are afraid of sharing their caste. and, And there is a vocabulary for that too, okay? They are outed. So if someone from an upper-class Hindu American family is running a company, they don't want to hire, even in America, so-called low-cost Hindus. And then it's strongly operative in South Asian families over here, in marriages and everything else, right? Some people do break through it, but it still follows them here, the politics and the social aspects of caste. And think about it, in Pakistan, you know, we do it all the time. Like uh, my own village family, you know, if someone becomes really successful and becomes rich, right, and we are the Rajputs, right, we are at the top of the, the apex, and people who feel resentful about someone else succeeding at the end, they're like, well, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, he's a mochi, he's a nai, because they refer back to their caste it still follows them and that is another problem of upward mobility in india as well as in pakistan is that you can become economically successful and rise high in the in the social order of hierarchy of economy but in so many ways the caste would still be operating. because i mean i'm not saying all across the board you know in in urban centers and others but by and large we already know about the Sayyid family. That's a peculiar case, but others too. Highly educated people will say, oh, we can't give up. Our son married, who did? In cases of sons, maybe they'll be okay, but for their daughters, they'll be very particular. So the system of caste still follows people over here in United States as well. Fayaz Ahmed sir please share your thoughts on my question posted earlier India is a secular state but it is a caste ridden Pakistan has the constitution granting equal rights for cities but it's not improvised well I mean for this you always have to learn that there are textual realities and then there are ground realities uh, in the constitution, India is a secular state. In Pakistani constitution, we are supposed to be a democracy. So we have United States, is we the people, in order to make a better union? Does that mean that there is no racism in United States? There is no sexism in United States? So the first distinction that you make in terms of exclusions is whether it is de jure or de facto. So is it inscribed in the Constitution that some people will be inferior to others? Then the problem is constitutional. It is textual. And the best way to remedy that is to change the laws. In the United States, we had Jim Crow laws. After they got eliminated, at least legally, no one could say you are black, you can't be in this part of the town. We now have laws that permit gay people to marry each other. We have laws which allow gay people to inherit each other's property. Previously, it wasn't a law, so they didn't have those rights. Then after you've made a law, there is no law in the U.S. Con- <laughs> legal system that says white people are superior and others are inferior. But that doesn't eliminate the de facto racism of a culture that takes a longer time. Similarly, India can have a secular constitution with a few caveats in it. That constitution alone does not provide that everything would be hunky-dory after that. That struggle still is in the streets. Pakistan, the same way. It can have an Islamic constitution, whatever that means to Pakistanis, right? But if it has inherent inequalities written in the constitution, then first of all, those inequalities will need to be contested. And then you go into the cultural and political realm, and there are a lot of things that happen that are counter to whatever a nation or its constitution or laws aspire to. So we can't say this is a secular state and this is a religious state, simply because a piece of paper has declared. So we also have to look at the regional particularities, the politics that is mobilized, and then see where a given specific culture is. Tania Asif, also in countries like India and Pakistan, The said laws are not followed or implemented from the top as well. So people have no precedents to turn to. Yes, I mean, sometimes a protection is granted in the Constitution, and it's either denied outrightly or not implemented. So the problem is, of course, amongst the people as well, but also at the top. And it also depends on who is in power, what is their agenda, what part of the conversation do they want to privilege. And then they make policy and laws. So what what I'm trying to say is that simply because a nation claims to be secular or claims to be Marxist doesn't necessarily mean that they are secular and they are Marxist. I mean, look at China. Someone just posed a question to me through comments on another video suggesting that China was somehow a Marxist nation at this point. And I was like, yeah, I mean, their constitution says they are a communist country and they have a communist party, but they are the most capitalistic state at this point. So they have destroyed all the enabling aspects of Maoism and then created a system of government, which is still centralized and is one party system and it's still autocratical while opening up their economy. So they have the worst of both the worlds or best of both the worlds. But democracy, it is not. And Marxism or Maoism, it is not. But on paper, yeah, they are a communist regime. I am currently writing on love, family and employment as informed by caste. I was asking mainly about these theorists, Spivek, Gua. Ghosh and Chakrabarti. So I don't know if any of these, Spivak you will probably find something about, but I don't recall Ranajit Goha saying anything about love and all. And uh, then Deepesh Chakrabarti also not, but you can retrieve from Deepesh Chakrabarti's nation and its fragments, that moment where he is discussing Hindi drama And where the figure of the native woman is juxtaposed against the caricatured Western woman. Because, look, Chakrabarti's argument is that the concept of nation didn't come to India through downward percolation, which is what we call the Cambridge thesis but rather the idea of the nation emerged in the private sphere and that the private sphere was immune to the political influences of the colonizers. So if you go and read that carefully enough, maybe you can mobilize that to read the novel. But pretty much usually when people ask me what can I use to read this novel, I'm usually clueless because even when I have to read a novel, I have to go figure out what is it I'm trying to say and in order to figure that out, I have to go do my research to figure out what has been said about the novel, And that gives me a space to enter. And that's the process you will have to do if you are going to write an extensive work on The God of Small Things. Another important thing to keep in mind is if you are writing a dissertation, it cannot just be on The God of Small Things. It can be on Arundhati Roy. And if you do that, then you can incorporate her journalistic writings, her political writings, and see if, if they talk to each other. For example, my master's thesis was not on Midnight's Children. It was on Salman Rushdie. But in my introduction, I said I will only deal with the first three novels of Salman Rushdie. So they, that gave me a limited scope. So I would suggest instead of saying I will write a dissertation on God of Small Things, which would be very limiting... You do a dissertation on her as an author. After all, people do write dissertations on Shakespeare and Ben Jonson. So you're currently looking at Can the Suburban Speak? Yes, I have uh, about four videos on it. I haven't done the concluding video on it. But if you are going to use Can the Suburban Speak, you will also have to read her revision of Three Women's Texts, Rani F. Seymour, and Can the Subaltern Speak in her book, a critique of post-colonial reason, because she goes and tweaks those. So be aware of that. Nimra Javed, why social identities are so powerful, how they have been strengthened over time, and what factors strengthen social identities in a society? I mean, that's a really complex question, and I'm not a sociologist. But, I mean, you have the answer to that question yourself. I mean, how do we become who we are? I have a lecture on Mark Brocker's work. It's listed under pedagogy. But most theorists of identity would tell you that our identities are formed under three separate registers. So we have certain narrative structures that we rely on. These are the stories that we have internalized, stories that have been told to us, religious, ethnic, national, and they become a register under which we define who we are. Then we have, and that is the linguistic register, then we have affective register, things we like, things we feel about, the music we like, the smells that we like. But out of them, the linguistic register is the strongest. And that means that we all carry... Wherever we go, certain what they call self-serving narratives. These self-serving narratives have already told us what constitutes a good male identity, what constitutes a good female identity, and it's always in juxtaposition to our others. I'm a Pakistani, she's an Indian, I'm supposed to hate her, that kind of idea. But our problem always is that we are trying, wherever we enter a space, a hostile space or a new space, we are anxious about ourselves. So most of our energies are spent on protecting our identity. That's why, you know, teach parents who would tell you don't go to a university because your faith will be destroyed are worried that if added information is given to you, what they have granted you as your religion will become untenable. So if we buy into this, that part of who we are coming from Freud, even and Lacan, that we are socialized into being who we are that is what we buy into, then we know that identity is created because from our very childhood, the stories we are told, things we believe in, don't just structure our identity. They also give us a worldview. And because of that worldview, we already sift dangerous knowledges away from our identity because those are threatening. So in order to change someone's point of view, the latest research has shown us that giving them more facts is not going to do that because their investment in identity is not necessarily purely rational. It is emotional. So what we need to do then is to enable them to strengthen their identities enough so that they can question the very frames in which that their identity is framed. They have the courage to do so. And if they have the courage to do so or think at least outside of their identity, Only then the schemas in their brain that determine what they consider right and wrong will shift. And unless we change those schemas, we cannot change people's points of view. So I have a lecture on it already recorded. It's under critical pedagogy, Mark Brocker. I highly recommend you should watch it. But these are some of my ideas as to how the social in so many ways doesn't just determine who we are, but inscribes that into our very souls, so to speak. So class distinction is there all over the world. How do you see this marginalization owing to caste and social class based on economy? So, I mean, any given culture is a class-based culture. There are social hierarchies at play. There is no simply egalitarian society where everyone is equal. The question that is important is to know how strongly those boundaries are maintained, how stringent the system is. Are those boundaries permeable? If they are, how? Is it through education? Is it through entrepreneurship? Is it through state-mandated policies? So the question then is, is someone working towards, or is there a system or a mechanism that enables people to fight against the very givens of their life? And the give, what is the given of your life? Is the station that you are born in? So is there a stringent system that tells you this is who you are? and you cannot aspire to anything beyond that, then that's a different kind of hierarchy. If you're in a system where people say it doesn't really matter who your parents are, whether they are this or that, we will make sure that you have access to education, access to food, shelter, and care, so that you can go and be the best you can, then you have a different kind of social system. A social system which takes it for granted that every human being deserves a chance, and the state must provide that chance to escape the very given of their life. In any given society, that is always operative. Sometimes it is legally operative sometimes it is socially operative, sometimes it is just de facto. Race plays a huge role on what people can accomplish, even though the laws of United States do not say that. How? First of all, I mean, you have to deal with racial prejudice. Two, if you are from a poor African-American community, chances are you live in a poor neighborhood. Chances are, if you live in a peer poor neighborhood, the industry has escaped from there and, and, and the drug dealers have come in. And so you have to deal with those people as well. If you are a young teenager, then your school system is not as well funded as a suburban school. So even if technically you have a right to a free education and then go to college, your school is not likely to be as well equipped as the school as a suburban school. So all of these inequalities are then inscribed in that cultural experience. And that means there is no level playing ground. And so in any given society, there are always hierarchies. What we have to figure out is, are those hierarchies impermeable, unchangeable, immutable? Then there is a problem with that. Are those hierarchies of class, gender, and everything unstable? and can be changed, removed. The idea is to have a society where mobility, lateral, and upward should be possible. But we will still not create an equal world in terms of who has how many resources. But we might be able to create a world in which everyone has access to the resources of the state and can pursue and follow whatever they think will make them better. And that's the possibility that we work with. Okay, so what is marginalization? I have a video on it. I would encourage you to watch that. But I mean, if you look at the word, a margin is always with reference to something that is centered. So anytime there is a small nucleus which contains more power and places others on the periphery than those who are not Permitted into that structure of power, social, political, are being marginalised. Okay, Faryal, we always used to talk about the colonisers in bad colonization, but but not our own people who have marginalised the women at their own level, and that is the. Uh, I don't think so. Who the we is? I'm highly critical of the patriarchy in Pakistan and patriarchy everywhere else. In my work, yeah, I I. I am with Spivak, right? It was a terrible system, but colonialism also created some enabling conditions. Now, that doesn't mean it was good. But in my work, both published and in this forum and everywhere else, I'm highly critical of gender hierarchies in Pakistan. I'm critical of the patriarchy, masculinity. I'm critical of any institution that claims a monopoly on truth and how things are be said so i don't know who you are talking about and who is the we i don't consider myself as part of that we and i i would hope more and more are not part of that we but these hierarchies exist these social and political ills exist in all societies the question is are we aware of them and are we actively try to fight them trying to fight them right that's the question So coming back to the novel, then you can read it from any perspective. You can read it from the point of view of how technically the childhood narration is operative there, right? You can read it from the point of view of the regional politics of Kerala, both in 1960s and 1993, and how they impact the story. Then you can read it in terms of the experience of the individual characters and the trauma That shapes their lives. So that would come through trauma studies. And, you know, if all else fails, you can just read it for pleasure, right? It's a beautifully written novel. It's poetic. And you can just enjoy how she tells this such a heartbreaking story in such a beautiful way. So that's all I have to say about the novel. Now, you might have noticed also today, just like always, we start with a novel or a topic. But when we come to the questions, the questions kind of go in pretty much every direction. But that's part of this conversation. So I am going to conclude here and see if you have any other questions or comments um, and try to answer them. But Please keep in mind, we do this every Saturday uh, at 10 o'clock my time. You can figure, and this is the central daylight time in the United States. And quite a few of you always join me on Saturdays. And if I decide not to do it a week, you know, I will always make an announcement on the community tab on the channel, on our Facebook group. And do please join it. It's called Postcolonial Space. You can just search it. It will show up. And we also make announcements sometimes on my website, which is postcolonial.net. All of these are available for you to use. We also now have a podcast, which is called Postcolonial Space. Also, it's available on Spotify, Apple, any other uh, podcasting Platform. So these are all the ways in which you can access the materials that are on this channel, on the website and on the podcast. So good. Yeah, uh, um, Dini, it's that's how a reading ought to be, that every time you read a novel, you know, you come up with something different. And that's a good thing because we shouldn't be seeking, you know, a single or two answers to any novels or any texts. Okay, um, that's all. Thank you so much. I'm going to sign off now. And this will be available in an edited form as well. But I will uh, let you know what we'll be covering next week. Uh, Feel free to suggest anything if it is within the realm of my expertise and what we have planned for this long-term post-colonialism course. I'll try to work with you. But other than that, as always... Thank you so much and remember, peace and love.